Well, good morning, folks. Welcome to church. Let me add my welcome to Vedas. Uh, we're going to have more worship at the end, but we're going to take some time to dig into the Bible just now. Just, uh, just what, before we do that, let me just mention really quickly, we have, we're, a, we're part of a network of churches that's all over the world now, about 1,500 churches. And uh, we very much play our part in that, and we love planting churches. We've planted six churches from Edinburgh, as well as obviously four locations in Edinburgh. And our dream is in the years ahead to plant more churches. But I just want to quickly put in your radar, Destiny Aberdeen, uh, I've gone through an exciting transition recently where uh, a, a good friend of mine, Jeff, and Sarah have been set in as the lead couple in that church. So they, that was just last weekend, they were prayed over and set in as lead pastor. And uh, they, they are relocating the church to, right into the slap bang city center of Aberdeen. So if you're up for an adventure, and maybe, I don't know if you're if you feel like your time in Edinburgh is coming to an end or you're up for an adventure, why not consider prayerfully going up and helping them? Maybe a few of you will be part of that journey with them in Aberdeen. So just sowing that seed, throwing it out there. Uh, be part of a church plan. All right, let's pray. And we're going to turn to the Bible. Hey, if you're visiting with us, extremely warm welcome to you today. Uh, we're going to be looking at the subject of marriage. Um, so I realize not everyone's married here, uh, but I guess it's relevant for all of us. We all know people who are married some of us who aren't married will become married, so this is a preparation for some of you, and it'll also be a, a wisdom for some of you, so you can advise others and help others. But let's just ask God to help us. Father, just now as we turn to the Bible, I pray that you would speak to us. I ask that you would encourage us. I ask for those gods who are not yet in relationship with you, God, that today this would be the beginning of a relationship with you, the greatest relationship of all. I ask, Father, as we unpack the truth of the Bible, that you would speak to us, that you touch our lives. God, for those who this is a very, this is a hard subject to talk about, I ask God today that they, they wouldn't feel it as a, as a criticism or as a judgment, but they would find encouragement and peace in God. All of us are on a journey, God, and some of us have failed, some of us are currently failing, some of us are currently succeeding, but God, wherever we're at in this journey, I pray today wisdom from the Bible would come in to help us and encourage us and build us up. Give us a vision for this thing that you have a vision for. In Jesus' name, amen. Marriage. Marriage is incredibly important. Very, very important. Very important to God. Very important to all of you. Um, there was a guy who'd been married 10 years. It was his 10-year anniversary. And um, he wanted to celebrate his 10-year anniversary by, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't be at home that day because he had to be in work for various reasons. He, he had a very busy work schedule, and uh, he was planning to see his wife in the evening, but when he was at work, he sent her, uh, she, he phoned the florist and ordered 10 flowers, 10 roses to be sent to her, and also asked for 10 helium balloons uh, to be delivered to her with a card on it. And so he got these sent to her, and, and she re received them at home. And, but she was a bit taken aback by the card that was written on the helium balloons. It, it, was, it was meant to say, you make me soar, like, a, like an eagle. Okay? But the florist wrote, wrote soar, S-O-R-E, like as an ah, soar. Okay? Now, that's the truth about marriage, isn't it? I mean, the reality is that actually marriage as God intended it was meant to help you to soar. But so oftentimes, marriage can make you sore, ah, really sore. 
And what we see is in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we see God's original intention to marriage. And often we've got to go right back to the beginning to understand the foundation so we can build well. Now, if you look at God's original intention before sin came into this world, it was designed in Genesis chapter 2 as a mechanism to help you to soar. However, in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as sin came into the world, marriage became a thing that made you soar. Ah, it was sore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump between Genesis 3 and Genesis 2, talking about how the soreness in marriage, that God can turn it, and it should be actually something that causes you to soar. So I've got three words for you from the verses. The first word is lame. Say lame. So Genesis chapter 3. That was lame. Okay. Say say lame. Lame. Slightly better. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the tree in the garden, of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit that is in the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. For you will not, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was, where was he? He was with her, say with her, and he ate it. So here's the moment, the tragic moment where all of a sudden into a perfect world, sin comes. With sin, disasters suffering, anxiety, wars, disease, every human misery finds its roots right here where sin came into the world, the fall of man. And notice sin devastated relationships. And the first thing we see here was this, it actually undermined Adam. Now, here's my question. Where was Adam when sin was breaking out, when all hell was breaking loose, as it were, on earth? Where was Adam? He was right there. (laughs) When Eve was making the craziest decision that would bring devastating consequences to the whole earth, where was Adam? He was right there. And what was he doing? Nothing. Nothing. He was just standing by, tame, lame, standing by, not intervening, not rolling his sleeves up, abdicating responsibility. Now, here's what sin does in a relationship. Sin distorts the man's role and sin distorts the woman's role. See, for men, it causes men to either go to one extreme or the other. Either they abdicate all responsibility or they abuse their authority. You see one extreme or the other happening. You have people who abdicate. They just step back, just like Adam. They were lame. Just step back, do nothing. Don't get involved. Don't lead the way don't intervene when things are going wrong. That's lame, and it's devastating in a relationship. Then you get other men who, in a relationship, they swing to the other extreme, and they're abusing authority, and they're just totally in your face, not fair, like a little dictator in their own home. It's like the guy who um, he was he was a he was a business manager in his company, and he was getting a wee bit fed up that people didn't really give him the respect he was due. So he nipped out that morning, got a sign from the local sign shop saying, I am the boss. And he put the sign up on his door, I am the boss. 
Anyway, later in the day when he came back from lunch, he saw that someone else has stuck another sign on top of it saying, um, your wife came in and she was asking for her sign back. <laughs> I am the boss. But some guys, they think, all right, to, to be a good leader, I've got to, I've got to dictate this home. I've got to, I, I've, I've got to take no nonsense. And you're just, you're, to be honest, some of you are just little dictators in your own home. And <laughs> there was a wife said amen there. Yeah, okay, well, we'll quickly move on. Some of you are little dictators in your own home. You can say amen. Maybe don't say it loudly. Say it silently. (laughs) But just to be really clear in this one, it is inappropriate to be abdicating responsibility. And men, it's also inappropriate to abuse your authority. And just so I say it, abuse in a home is totally unacceptable. You keep your hands off her. And also be very, very careful how you speak to her. She's a gift to you from God. So abuse or abdication. And see, in Genesis 3.16, it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And the ruling over isn't a positive thing. It's a, it's a negative leadership. It's a domineering trait. But notice it says, and this is what, this is what sin does to women. Your desire will be for your husband. And that in itself doesn't sound bad, but actually the verbs used in that phrase only appear one other time in the Old Testament, and it's in the next chapter, where God says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. You must master it. So just, just in the same way that sin wanted to manipulate Cain, manipulate and boss Cain around, so also those same verbs are used in the way the woman wants to interact with the husband. Your desire will be for him for your husband. And what it's saying is it's talking about a manipulation, a desire to undermine and manipulate the marriage. And what, what, what sin does is this. For the woman, it either makes them domineering or domineered. Either they become these domineered people who have lost their voice and lost all confidence because of the dominating husbands, or they become domineering and they try and lead the way, maybe because he isn't. But either way, you've, you're, you're, you're distorting the extremes. You're moving to extremes. Sin comes into this world and it ruins not only our relationship with God, but also it ruins our relationship with each other. But thank God for Jesus. In Romans, it says this about Jesus Christ, Romans 5 verse 18. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, that's talking about Adam's sin, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Thank God for Jesus. The one man's disobedience, who's that talking about? Adam. The one man's obedience, who's that talking about? Jesus. Notice, when God places the blame for the fall of man, he places it on Adam, not on Eve. Do you see that? Now, if you read the verses, who's the one who sinned first? Eve. Yeah, so, but God nevertheless places the blame for the fall of man on Adam. Why? Because that's what it means to be head of the home. It means the buck stops with you, sunshine. It means you are the one God will hold accountable for how it's going in your home. He's not going to, you can't say, oh, it's hurt. No, no, you may. If it's not going well in your home, the buck stops with you. Not your wife. Don't blame your kids. You. 
The buck stops with you. That's what it means to be the head of the home. It doesn't mean you're a dictator. It means that before God, you're responsible. But here, Jesus Christ, unlike Adam, Adam was lame. He stood by while all hell was breaking loose. Jesus Christ, however, stepped up. And Jesus took responsibility for the sins that he hadn't even committed. Jesus Christ, on a cross 2,000 years ago, took responsibility where Adam didn't take responsibility. Jesus took responsibility for our sins. In a garden at the beginning, disobedience brought disastrous consequences on earth. But in a garden 2,000 years ago, Jesus, in the garden of Gethsemane, his obedience brought life-giving consequences for humanity. You see, we put ourselves where God alone deserved to be. We chose to be God. We wanted to be our own bosses. And that was the fall. But 2,000 years ago, God put himself where we alone deserve to be. He put himself in the place of being punished. Jesus was punished in our place. It's like identity theft. If someone steals your credit cards and assumes your identity, they amass debt against you. But it's in reverse on the cross. Jesus assumed your identity on the cross. And he didn't amass debt against you. Rather, he cleared your debt and he credited to your account. One man for all people, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. His obedience brings life to all people, to individuals, to marriages, to situations. Wow. Let's hear it for Jesus, the great Savior. Let's go back to Genesis 2 and see what the beginning. So Genesis 3 is after the fall, but that was, there was lameness, there was weak leadership, there was, there was a distortion of roles. But let's look at what God intended before. Genesis chapter 2, it says, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then God made Eve. Now just, just, just to jump right in this, some of you see that as like a demeaning term. That, oh, wow, the wife's called the helper. It sounds like a demeaning term in first, in first reading. But what you discover is that word helper in the Hebrew language in which it was written occurs 19 other times in the Old Testament. 16 out of those 19 other times when that word appears in the Old Testament, 16 of them, it's used in direct reference to none other than God. So far from it being a demeaning term, it's a, it's a title that is given to God himself, the helper. So, in fact, if, if it's a, the helper inferred always, always on every occasion in the Old Testament, inferred a stronger helping a weaker, okay? So, it's just, just like, I mean, if you need help in algebra, you need, if you've got a helper in algebra, it infers that they know algebra better than you do, okay? So, the helper helps the weaker. So, thank, thank God for a helper. God's made it so that God brings a helper into the man's life. What's, what's clear in the Bible is this. Men and women are equal, but men and women are different. Say that with me. Men and women are equal, but men and women are different. In Genesis chapter 1, it says in verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what we see is that the image of God isn't just masculine. That the image of God is male and female. That in the, in the sight of God, men and women are equal. But also what we see in the Bible is that men and women are different. Hey, we don't need the Bible to tell us that one, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, let me give you some facts about, here's some things that are different to guys and girls. Some things about guys. 
phone conversations are over, we can get them over in 30 seconds flat. No one's offended. Okay? Five-day holiday requires only one suitcase. Guys, you know it's the case. Guys, we can open all our own jars. We can go to the bathroom without a support group. We can leave the hotel bed unmade. Fine with that. You can quietly enjoy a car ride from the passenger seat. Can't we, guys? Ladies? Anyway. Men, we don't have to clean our flat before the meter reader comes. And if you're going to pop around and see someone, you don't have to take them a little something. All right? It's funny, I, when me and Angie are visiting someone, uh, Angie says, what will we get them? I said, well, us, we're going. They'll, they'll just be really happy to see us. No, but they've always got to bring a, a little something. Things you learn, eh? So, and Christmas shopping, guys, you know, guys, you know, we can do all shopping for the 25 relatives on December the 24th in 45 minutes. It is possible. We know we can do it. So men and women are so different. Men and women are equal, but men and women are different. And it goes on in the verses, Genesis 2, 21, and it says, So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib that was taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, I love what he says about this. It's very beautiful. He says, the woman was made out of the rib, out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him by him, but from his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. So, Men and women, husband and wife, you're not there to compete with each other. You are there to complete each other. It's meant to be this synchronization. In the New Testament, you see this theme picked up in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is head of the church. Going on in the verses, husbands Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Each one of you also must love, say love, his wife just as he loves himself. And the wife, wife must respect, say respect, the husbands. It's this, it's, you're not meant to compete with each other, you're meant to complete each other. It's like if you're watching Strictly Come Dancing and you see those dancers moving in beautiful synchronization. Incredible. Now, on the surface, it looks like they're just in perfect sync. But actually, behind the scenes, you know that one of them's taking the lead. It's not obvious from looking on, but one of them in the dance partnership always takes the lead. But on the surface, it looks like perfect synchronization. And that's exactly a great picture of how God wants it to be in marriage. That husbands are to be the heads, but it's not to be some domineering role. But there should be this beautiful sinking together and flowing together and this beautiful strength. Sin caused men to abdicate all responsibility or abuse their authority. Jesus Christ shows us exactly what true headship's about. In Jesus's book, the head means you take responsibility. You lay your life down for your wife and your kids, that you lay it on the line for them. 
It means being tender, loving, taking responsibility, sacrifice, taking initiative. It means you provide and protect. It means you are the one praying and intervening when you see things going wrong. That God is the one who's raised you up, husbands, to be head of your home. So don't abdicate that responsibility and don't abuse that responsibility, but be like Jesus Christ in that responsibility. Women, wives, you're called to submit and honor and respect your husbands. It's interesting, there's a book, a famous book now called Love and Respect by Emerson Egerich. And in this book, Love and Respect, the tagline is this, the love she most desires and the respect he desperately needs. They talked in the book about a survey they carried out among 7,000 people asking them, when you're in conflict with your spouse or significant other, do you feel unloved in that moment or disrespected? What they found is this, that 83% of men said in those moments of conflict they felt disrespected. 72% of women said in those moments of conflict they felt unloved. Isn't it interesting that just the, the differences between men and women, this is just this, women need to know they're loved. Men need to feel they're respected. And that's exactly what the Bible has always said. Husbands, see to that you love your wives, and wives must respect her husbands. Now, a husband should respect also his wife, and the wife should also love her husband. But the Bible deliberately pulls these out because it's so, so important. You see, ladies, you might say, well, he doesn't deserve my respect. You know, if, if he only played his part properly, if he only kind of really took responsibility, then he would get my respect. Yeah, yeah. But you're just nagging him to bits. You're just on his case. Just, the Bible talks about you're like a dripping tap. That's what it says in Proverbs. A drip. He's like a dripping tap. You're just on his case, telling him what he's not, telling him how he's failing, constantly eroding his confidence. Yeah, you never, you never notice the things he does good. You only notice the things he does bad. No wonder he's not shining. No wonder he's not tanning tall. He feels naff about himself. You've eroded him. Repent. There was an amen from the, was that from the husband. Okay, that was, you guys can have a wee chat afterwards. And some of you ladies, you're just eroding your husband's confidence by constantly telling him what he's not doing. And whenever he tries a bit, you don't acknowledge it. And, and, and then husbands, you're like, well, I'm not going to love her. I'm getting nothing back. I'm, I just feel totally disrespect, totally constantly eroded. And, and, you, and you don't show any love. Listen, it's just like bike pedals, folks. It's like pedaling a bike. If you, if you push one pedal down, what happens to the other pedal? Pushing one pedal down lifts the other pedal up. And then you push that pedal down and it lifts the other pedal up. You see, if, if you just wait for them to play their part, then you're, you're not going to do anything. But if you say, do you know what? Okay, even if not much respect is coming, I'm going to love like I ought to. I'm going to love like Jesus loved the church. I'm going to lay my life down. And then you push that pedal down. Then all of a sudden that empowers her as she feels that love. It empowers her to then hopefully show you that respect. And ladies, if you're saying, well, he's not showing me much love. Well, you start showing him some respect. As you start showing him some respect, you push your pedal down. Boom, it empowers him. As he feels that, all of a sudden, he's going to start overflowing and giving you that love that you so desire. So love and respect. So lame. Second word we see, and this links to what went wrong after sin came into the world, is shame. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 to 11. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the Lord, so and then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Mark Twain, the author, said this. He said, We are all like the moon. We have a dark side we don't want anyone to see. When sin came into the world, shame came into the world. And so often the shame that comes into this world is so often linked to sexuality or sexual issues. Their sin made them instantly aware of their nakedness and they covered their sexual organs. Sin brought shame. Sin brought devastating consequences right through. In fact, this is Genesis chapter 3. That's when sin came. But right from there on, boom, boom, boom. It was like a cascade effect of sinful impact on our sexuality. Genesis 4, we see polygamy. Genesis 6, we see evil intentions and dark sexual practices just before the flood. Genesis 16, you see adultery. Genesis 19, you see homosexual sex. Genesis 34, you see fornication, which is sex outside of marriage or before marriage, and rape. In Genesis 38, you see incest and prostitution. In Genesis 39, you see seduction. So all of a sudden, the sin that came into the world in Genesis 3 has this cascade effect of sexual sins which have devastating effect on human existence. Sin brings shame, and shame and sin ruin marriages. It's like a timing belt. You have the timing belt in the car and you leave it unchanged. There comes a moment where that timing belt literally can take out the whole engine or right off your car. It's if you allow there to be shame, if you allow there to be things, sh- shadows, skeletons in your closet, hidden things, secret things, things unconfessed, not brought into the light, stuff going on in your marriage or in your life. And this is for whether you're married or not, actually. This is, this is important. This is life this is, this is important for your life, that if you're carrying shadows, if you're carrying secret sins, that, that it, it can, it's like a time belt. It can literally take out your entire life. It can take out your marriage. It can take out your, you as a person. Jesus said this, Luke chapter 8, verse 17. For everything that is hidden or secret will eventually be brought to light and made plain to all. Everything that's hidden and secret will eventually be brought to light and made plain to all. It's a universal rule. If something's hidden, it will come to light. It will eventually be manifest to all. I remember, um, you know, you have these memories from childhood. And they usually, like, all right, okay, I remember those things. And they're kind of some, some of them are really random. Let me just share one random memory I have from childhood. It's really weird. Uh, I was having a bath with my sister, so I was very, very young, and she was very young, just to be clear on that. <laughs> Mum was giving us both a bath, and uh, I don't know what got into me, but I did a poo. I mean, I did a poo in the bath. <laughs> it's been years since I've done that. I mean, <laughs> right, so I did a poo in the bath. You're like, what? And I, I remember this, and I, I remember, th- I, I just knew, that's so wrong. And I, I was sitting in the bath, I thought, I cannot let my sister see this. And I just remember spending the entire time in the bath positioning myself between it and her. So as it drifted, I repositioned myself 
I, I, she's just not going to see this thing, right? She's just not going to. Anyway, there was an inevitable moment coming, all right? The plug was pulled. I was quite happy. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'll just stay in the bath a little. My sister was out. My mom was drying her down. Uh, but the hat, they came, that, that moment came. The reveal happened. She freaked out, absolutely freaked out. It was the last time she ever had a bath with me. That was when I was 16. No, I was just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I mean, weird memory, right? Really weird memory. So that's the best illustration I've got to illustrate this verse. Okay, that's, that's the best one I could come up with. Everything that's hidden or secret will eventually be brought to light and made plain to all. It's true. It's the best illustration I've got, folks. It is so true. Everything that's hidden, it's a universal principle. It will come to light. It will come to light. So if you're carrying hers, if you're carrying hers, they will not just be there. Because hurt people hurt people. It will come to light. If you're carrying bitterness and unforgiveness towards people, maybe past relationships, maybe parents, maybe, maybe, maybe friends, you're carrying bitterness, I promise you, it will come to light. It will, it will manifest. Sometimes it manifests in your ill health. Bitterness often erodes someone's physical well-being or mental well-being. Bitterness manifests in a trail of broken relationships. If you're carrying sexual sin, dabbling with pornography, masturbating, living that that will come to light. It'll have devastating effects on your marriage. There will be a distance between you. The, you, you anything going on behind the scenes will affect in the open, and eventually it will come to light. So it's better you control how it comes to light rather than just it coming to light. You controlling how it comes to light is called confession. Bring things into the light. Don't live with secrets in your relationships. I understand me saying to you, confess to your spouse, could have a devastating effect in your relationship. I know that. I know that. However, the devastation, the long-term pain and devastations of not confessing will be far greater than the short-term pain of confessing. And I know confessing might, might have repercussions. It might, it might be, you might not be able to recover from that confession. But better that and living in the light than the long-term anguish of the continual pain that you will have and the death to that relationship that will happen for the long term if you do not confess. I remember when we were just a year or so into the church, our lass was coming, she was connecting every so often with the church, and she'd, she'd got engaged, and the guy wasn't in the church, and she came to us one day after she'd been at a works night out, and she was totally devastated because at the works night out, she'd drunk too much, and she'd gone home with one of her colleagues and had sex. And, and now she's going to get married to this other guy. And she says, what do I do? So first of all, she asked God's forgiveness and we prayed with her. But then we said to her, listen, you need to tell him. Because it's, it's to do with foundation. If you go into a marriage and your foundation is fundamentally the this, this secrets, the skeletons in the closet, then that's no foundation to build on. Bring things into the open. I don't know if she ever did. But it's the advice. It's the toughest advice, but it's the most life-giving advice. Bring it into the open. So as human beings, we try and cover up our sin. By the way, when a moment of confession happens, forgiveness can be given, but trust must be earned. So you can say, okay, I forgive you. 
But don't feel guilty for not trusting him for a while. It takes time to trust. Human beings, we try and cover our sin. And that's what Adam and Eve did at the very beginning. They, they tried to cover their own sin. And actually, that's what religion does. Religion says, oh, I'll just try harder. I'll just try and appease God. Or I'll try and make it up. Uh, you know, I've, I've made some mistakes, but I'm going to make it up to God. Or I'm going to make it up to the other person. That's religion. Religion, your own efforts, cannot cover your own sin. But here's what God did. In Genesis 3, it says this, and it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. In Genesis 3.21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God covered their shame. The first death recorded in all history was instigated at the hands of God. The first shedding of bloods happened by God's hands. God killed an animal. God skinned that animal and he covered Adam and Eve with the skins, signifying that only by blood sacrifice can sin be dealt with. You see, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Sin results in death. So God caused the death to happen to atone for the sin. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, for we know that it was not by perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. In other words, the sin we've inherited all the way since Adam. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect. You see, if you have physical debt, you can clear physical debt by throwing money at it. But you can only clear moral debt when blood is shed. Either you pay for it yourself or you need a substitute. And thank God, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died as our substitute. His blood covers our sin. So whether you're married, single, or whoever you are, all your sin, all your shame, all your brokenness, and there's so much of it, folks. There's so much of it. God alone knows what's gone on in our lives. Thank God for a cross that covers our sins. Thank God for the blood that cleanses our sins. Thank God our Redeemer's alive and able to save forgive and cleanse and restore marriages and restore people. God is our Savior. We thank him for that. So let's go back to Genesis 2 and see how God intended it to be. Genesis 2, 24. Instead of the shame and the sinfulness and the sexual shame, it says that this is why a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So here now the word one flesh actually in the New Testament is used to describe sexual union. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you see that reference. So how do you protect your marriage from sexual shame? Paul's advice in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 is this. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourself completely to prayer. In other words, for a focus period on the Lord. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the Bible's very clear. The way you protect yourself sexually from sexual temptation is have lots of sex. Say amen. One the couple over here. <laughs> have lots of sex. Thank you. <laughs> In marriage, have lots of sex. And, 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 that's, and that's God's design. The Bible, the Bible some, some of you are from very religious backgrounds where sex was only for having babies, okay? 
That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the book of Song of Solomon is all about sex, but there's no mention of kids in it once. It's actually about having fun with sex in, in, in the context of marriage. Have regular sex. And I acknowledge there are seasons in life. Some seasons are when you're physically not well or you're going through some emotional challenges or you've got some upsets at work or you've just had some kids. Sex won't be as regular on those occasions. But as best as you can, have regular sex. Constant denial in marriage leaves people vulnerable to temptation. So guard yourselves from that. Never use sex as a reward and never deny it as never hold back sex as a punishment that has devastating effects on a marriage. Make sex spontaneous. Make it sexy. So spontaneous. Don't just let it be predictable. Ladies, you need to know that men are visual. So make it exciting and stimulating. You know, don't wear your mum's old nightgown with the bobbly bits on it, right? Invest in some nice lingerie. Guys, you need to know. You, you, you think, oh man, that masculine smell. Oh, real man. No, dudes, your mates might like that. She doesn't like it. You need to wash really well and put some deodorant on. And, you know, when it comes to sex, make it pleasurable for them. Don't just think about yourself. Don't just go into that for you of what you can get out of it, but think about how can I bless this person. And guys, you need to know making love doesn't start, you know, at a certain time of night. It starts how you treat her all week. Treat her like a queen if you want her to treat you like a king. And, you know, make it fresh. As years go by, make it fresh. Lame. Shame. And the last word is blame. Genesis chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Have you eaten from the tree? This is God speaking after the sin comes. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see what they're doing? They're just diverting the attention from themselves. It's always like, all right, was it you? No, it was her. It was the wife. And then the wife standing there, no, no, it was the devil. And the devil is just kind of sitting there squiggling, not really knowing where to turn. So, uh, but this is, what, this is what sin does. Sin stops you. Sin distorts your ability from taking responsibility. Um, I don't know if anyone saw the darts championship about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Anyone see that between the Scotsman and the, and the, the, the Dutchman? Oh, so funny. It was the bit after it was funny. So uh, this is by the Scotsman Gary Anderson, he beat the Dutchman, uh, Wesley Harms. He beat him 10-2, okay? However, after the match, the Dutchman complained to the Darts Regulation Authority that the Scotsman had been breaking wind on stage while he was playing darts, and this totally put him off. He said, and I quote, every time I walked past him, there was a waft of rotten eggs. If someone has done that, they need to see a doctor. He got, when he arrived back in the hall and he said, he said to Dutch television, it will take me two nights to lose the smell from my nose. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, the Scotsman firmly and strongly denied the accusations. He said, and I quote, if the boy thinks I farted, he's a thousand and ten percent wrong. I swear in my children's lives, it was not my fault. <laughs> and the chairman of the Professional Darts Corporation said, we've got to get to the bottom of this. 
<laughs> it's crazy, eh? So, I'd never taken an interest in darts up until that point. It's funny how darts sounds like, anyway. <laughs> but hey, you know, like, I mean, what, what are you going to do? You lost your darts match? Oh, the guy farted, that's why. Come on, seriously? What are we like? We blame. We don't take responsibility. You know, was it you? What's happened? Adam said, oh, it was Eve. Eve said, well, it was the devil. No taking responsibility. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and let's see what God's intention was. Genesis 2, 24. That is why a man shall leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Say one flesh. Now, one flesh does mean sexual union, but also one flesh infers covenants. Marriage is a covenant. Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 says, she is your companion, your wife by covenant. Now, there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract, in a contract, we protect our rights and we limit our responsibilities. So when you're buying a house, you protect your rights and you limit your responsibilities. When you're entering into a business contract, you always protect your rights and you limit your responsibilities. That's what a contract does. But a covenant is different. A covenant, we give up our rights and we pick up our responsibilities. And that's what a marriage is. Marriage is not about you protecting your rights and limiting your responsibilities. It's not like, all right, I'll give 50 or she gives 50. No, no. You give a hundreds and she gives a hundreds. And you give a hundred whether she is or not. And you give a hundred whether he is or not. You play a hundred percent. You give up your rights and you pick up your responsibilities. You can't change them. Many people in marriage say, well, it's their fault. Listen, you can do zip all about them, but you can do a lot about you. You can't change them, but you can take responsibility for you. A successful marriage isn't finding the right person, it's being the right person. Don't blame them. You play your part. It says in Jeremiah 32 verse 40, God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. I will never stop doing good to them. Whether God gets anything back, God's just committed himself to I will never stop doing good to them. That's what a covenant says. That's the language of covenant. Pete, what, what if we don't feel happy any longer? What if those feelings of happiness have gone? Listen, successful marriage isn't about you maintaining feelings of happiness. It's about covenant keeping. Feelings will come and go. They come and they go. And they'll come again. But successful marriage isn't about feelings of happiness. It's about covenant keeping. I love what Timothy Keller, the great author and pastor said. He said this, wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. We're living in a society that plugs and pushes. It's all about your happiness. It's all about your happiness. Society has lied. It's not about your happiness. And if you make it about your happiness, you know the very thing you'll not get? It's happiness. The most miserable people are the people who are living for their own happiness. It's not about your happiness. It never was. It's about covenant keeping. Actually, happiness will follow that. 
make a commitment like God's, I will never stop doing them good. That's God's commitment to us. That should be our commitment in marriage, in the covenant of marriage. Just make a commitment. I'm going to be a blessing to that person till the day I die. I'm going to love her more. I'm going to love him more in the days ahead than I ever have in the days past. It's about covenant keeping. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the covenant you've made with us. God, thank you so much for paying the price for the covenant with your own blood. Thank you for giving yourself so that we could be forgiven. Jesus, you started a covenant when you died on that cross. You wanted us to be in a relationship with you, an unbreakable relationship. And you didn't form a contract with us. You started a covenant with us, sealed by your own blood. And I pray, God, that we will learn from you and we will be people who learn to love like God loves and learn to be committed like God is committed and learn to be truthful like God is truthful and learn to be uh, loyal to our commitments like God is loyal to his commitments. Jesus, thank you so much for being the example of what husbands should look like, laying your life down for your bride. Lord Jesus, thank you for for the Bible that's given us this great foundation in the book of Genesis that calling us not to be lame leaders like Adam was, but to true husbands like Jesus is. Calling us not to be people who are blame, blaming each other, but rather taking responsibility. And thank you, God, you call us to live free from shame, no secrets, living in the light, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And I pray we would be a, a church full of married couples who are living that way, or people who go on to get married, they would live in those covenant relationships. In God's presence, I want you just to take a moment to respond. If you're married today, take a moment just to, you know the word repentance means change your mind. Some of us get stuck in ways of thinking that have devastating consequences on our marriages. So in this moment, Repent, change your mind. Think differently. If you've been thinking thoughts that are having devastating consequences, change your mind. If you know you need to bring something to the light, then bring something to the light. If you know you've been blaming, not, not taking responsibility, then take responsibility. For the singles here today, you are so loved by God. And I realize a message like this can be very hard, especially if you're longing for a relationship, I pray that what you've heard today, and take a moment to respond to this, that you'd pray that God let me be that sort of person when marriage comes my way. And in the meantime, be a great advisor to friends who are getting married. If you're here today and you don't yet know God, God loves you. He has a plan for your life. So if you're here and you're saying, Peter, I want to know God today. I want to be in relationship with the God who created me. Then I want to give you that opportunity just now. Very simply, if you want to know God, pray this prayer with me just now. Under your breath, repeat this after me. Just quietly under your breath, say, Dear Lord God, thank you so much for loving me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you for laying your life down so that I could be saved. Thank you for rising again the third day. And thank you that you are alive right now. 
Today, I commit my life to you. I commit my future to you. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Forgive me for all my sins and give me a new start right now. Thank you for hearing my prayer and accepting me as your child.